Will you turn in your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 3? This is the concluding sermon that I started in November. (laughs) On the first, I'd say, 10-ish verses in the middle of chapter 3 of Romans, the heart of the gospel. So in this study, we've looked at what righteousness is, that God is righteous, that God is like himself, that he promotes his righteousness, that he publishes his righteousness, he proclaims his righteousness to his enemies and to those of his people, and then he insists on all of his creatures being righteous. It is there that mankind resists God because we are not like him at all, and for us to be commanded to be like God when we are fallen in every regard, in our hearts and in our minds and in our hands. We want nothing to do with God. That's the problem. That is why that the entire earth is lost. And it was God's uh, law that is very much like him, his righteousness that's depicted in his law that condemns us because we have been commanded to be like that. But we see also that it wasn't just the righteousness of God demanded of us in the law that we cannot keep, that not one of us has ever kept, but the righteousness that is through his Son that has been given to all men who will come to him in faith. That is the beautiful gospel. The beautiful gospel is not do what you're supposed to do and God will accept you. That's not the beautiful gospel. That is the That is the law that will sink us to the lowest pits of hell. The beautiful gospel is that Jesus Christ lived for us. Then he died for us. And he is accepted in our behalf by simple faith. That is beautiful and amazing. So the the fall of mankind has crushed us. But the death of Christ on the cross has lifted us up to the highest heavens. And that is what he's offered to us in the gospel through faith in his blood, through faith in his blood. So I'd like to, since this is the last that I'm going to do in Romans for a while, I'd like to go back to the very beginning of Romans 1 and catch us up in Paul's argument because he is culminating today in something very, very amazing. And you really need to know the trajectory of what Paul is saying before it really has its full impact on us. So if you go to chapter 1 of Romans, uh, 14 through 17 is a memory verse. Lots of people know this by heart. And it says, starting in verse 14 of chapter 1, I'm a debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise, So as much as in me is, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. We see there right in the very beginning that little hint that what Paul is actually going to be sharing with us is the gospel, and that the gospel is the most powerful thing in the universe, more than anything you can imagine. It's stronger than the sun. It's stronger than a nuclear explosion. It has done more 
in this world than anything else has ever done. It has the ability to take a dead person and bring him to life and take a person who is destined to eternal destruction and lift them to heaven. It is, it is beyond belief. And Paul said, you make fun of me all you want. You laugh and mock and stone me. You drag me through your streets. I am telling you something so powerful, and I'm being kind to you by doing it. And it's going to destroy you before it makes you better. Because to hear the gospel means that we are not God, that we must turn to God, and that we are not good. We must turn to God because he is good. And when you are ready for that, the gospel will come out. Now, it's interesting that he only hints then at the gospel. He just says it's powerful. He doesn't say, hi, this is Paul. I've never met you before. Let me tell you the gospel. If you walk up to a person and say, God has a wonderful plan for your life, and um, he loves you, and he has a plan for your life, <laughs> people aren't ready for it. They're, they're not prepared. They're, they have no, they have no ears to hear. It doesn't mean anything to say that Jesus died for you. To walk up, if that is your only message, it, unless the Holy Spirit has prepped that person, that message will always fail because the gospel is powerful like gasoline is powerful, okay? Like a match is powerful. But if the Holy Spirit prepares you by pouring 100 gallons of gas on your floor, then light a match. It's instantaneous. When you are prepared to hear the gospel, when you have ears to hear and eyes to see, and then the gospel is presented, you'll respond. You'll respond not with a yawn. You'll not respond with a bored whatever. You'll respond with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And you will respond to the eternal change of your life, different than you've ever lived, and not a fraud, but genuine, to where you love God more than you love yourself, and you would rather him be king than you be king. And we have called Jesus King, and we've put our palms on the floor and then turned and said, crucify him. It's happened in my life. It's most likely happened in your life. So what happens when you have people who are not good enough to go to heaven? A righteousness from God has been revealed according to the law and the prophets to where God will accept you, in Jesus said, based upon faith in his blood. So when you, you pass verse 17, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he immediately starts with all the people in the world. He starts with the barbarians. Barbarians is actually direct Greek word. Barbarian is the Greeks making fun of people who are not Greek. So barbarian was ba-ba-ba-ba-barbarian. So essentially they were mocking people who didn't speak like they did. They were ba 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 ba. You can't even understand them. These are people painted blue, swinging from the trees. Okay, these are people that you can despise. People that obviously these are the people going to heaven or hell. These are the people that God doesn't like. These are the people that don't even know anything. They're not cultured. They're not sophisticated. They don't know the law. It's easy to despise the barbarians. God doesn't despise the barbarians. Now, interesting enough, 
The barbarians were given the creation of the world. Everybody can look out the window. Everybody can see a gorgeous blue sky against glistening white snow. Everybody can see it. There's nobody so arrogant that in their deep selves they don't say, oh, wow, what a wonderful um, happenstance or chance, random event that would cause something as beautiful as the back of your eye or your hand or how, how that the stars shine and how the sun comes up every morning at the same time and you can make predictions based upon it because everything is so perfect. And the more you know, the more you're dazzled that God is good to us. See, the barbarians were given nature, and nature is not enough to save your soul. To look at the sun and to look at the beauty and to look at your hand and to, look, to consider how wonderfully and fearfully you're made will not save your soul, but it will condemn you because there is no way that God is not creative and powerful. God did create this world, and you have no excuse. And the barbarians were also given a conscience. And you can sear your conscience with a red-hot iron to where you don't, it doesn't bother you anymore. You don't worry about it. You don't think about what happens anymore. You're fine. You don't feel the offense that you have against a God. You don't, one, you don't wonder what's going to happen on your last breath. You're blissful in your ignorance and towards your doom. But it's, that conscience is God's mercy to sit day after day. And if you are ever given a chance to quiet down long enough to know what is going to happen, you know that you're not right. You know that God is against you and that on that last day, you will go to destruction. You know it. So what people do is they fill their, their time they, with furious activity. They'll blind themselves and numb themselves with every legal and illegal drug and every practice, uh, virtuous or, or vicely, in order to not deal with their life. They don't want to know about it. They don't want to think about it. But that conscience is to drive you to the Savior. And when that person knows that, they're, that they have offended that God who really is God in heaven, then they're ready to hear the gospel. Paul didn't talk about the gospel in chapter 1, only that one little hint, that little fragment, that little wisp of it's powerful and I'm not ashamed of it. That's all he said. So he talks about the barbarians, and you can imagine all of those sophisticated Greeks and all those Hebrews saying, yeah, that's easy. They're all going to hell, Okay. So I had a friend who shared, who shared the gospel at a biker bar, and he went up to a big, bald, tattooed guy named Satan. He had Satan tattooed across his forehead. And he said, hi, my name's Bob. What's your name? Satan. He said, oh, I see. You've got it on your head. I should have known that your name was Satan. Satan, you need the Lord. That's what he said. <laughs> the, fun, the funniest thing I ever heard, Satan, you need the Lord. That idea to go to the barbarians where you know that they're going to hell. God doesn't despise them. So then Paul doesn't stop there. He doesn't say, well, it would be nice if the barbarians knew the Lord. He then goes to the Greeks, and the Greeks were sophisticated. They were educated. The Greeks wrote poetry and philosophy and had democracy while everybody else was swinging from the trees. They, were, they truly were sophisticated, and they, Sophia is how, where you get the word philosophy. They loved wisdom. 
When Paul finally got to Athens, all the men of the city did all day long every day was sit around and talk about the newest ideas because they loved thinking about ideas. They loved it. They were higher than the barbarians. And immediately, Paul just pulls the rug out from under their eyes and said, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, thinking they were so smart. All of your PhDs, all of your knowing the minutia of all the little stuff, but not seeing God, to know the tiny little micro nothings of something and not seeing God behind it, what an idiot you are. What a, what a sophomore you are. What a wise fool you are. And that's what he said. You all think you're so wise. You think your PhDs have saved you. You're just as lost as the barbarians. And then those law-loving Hebrews were like, yeah, you tell them. It's so easy to point at somebody else. It's so easy to say that we're in the us and you all and they are in the them. But the Bible puts me in the, in the them. And I have to know that, that I'm not an us, I'm a them. And when I know that I'm a them, I'm that much closer to knowing the gospel. I'm much more close to hearing the gospel, to hearing it with real ears. When the Pharisee came to Jesus and said, and Jesus said, well, how do you read the law? You know the law, obviously. What does the law say? And he said, he asked Jesus and Jesus said, well, you should love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbors yourself. And the Pharisee said, well said, Rabbi. That's exactly, there's nothing greater than to love God with all your heart. That's better than all the sacrifices. And Jesus said, you're this close to the kingdom. You're this close. One more step, and you will have the proper ears to hear the gospel. One more step. And so then, at, starting in the middle of verse 3, he's condemned them all. He said, you Jews who love the law, you're worse than all of them. Do you not realize to know what God expects and not do it is worse than anybody else? The Philistines who attacked Israel and took the, the, took the Ark of the Covenant, you would expect the Philistines to do that. It was, the, it was God's people that God was judging. God's people who was treating him like superstition that wasn't truly following him but wanting him to do something for them no matter what they did. So when God judged them, they were much more guilty than the barbarians, much more guilty than the others. Okay, Though those people were guilty, God said through Jeremiah, I will punish the Babylonians. I will raise them up and they will with their swords uh, humble my people then I will humble them, okay? They are my servants here, used as my hands, then I will punish them because they're arrogant and they, they, have, they would dare touch my people. Now, that's pretty funny, almost. The idea that God is saying, there's nothing righteous in them and I will judge them, but I'm gonna use them because you have actually sinned worse because you are the ones who should know me. All of these people, it was the Pharisees that told Jesus on on Palm Sunday. What are you doing? Tell these people to stop shouting. The little kids are running around saying, Hosanna, stop them. Jesus said, oh, I'm sorry. If I were to stop them, the rocks would start shouting because their maker is standing in their presence. The rocks will shout. Aren't you glad that God allowed you, you rock, 
to shout. Don't you? You're dead as a doornail, like a rock on the ground, totally worthless to anybody. And in the, in the hand of a strong man, a rock can break a window. A, a rock can do anything. A, a rock it could take down Goliath and did. The rock that he made us into. The rock Peter, the wobbly who became rock, do not realize that's us. He's talking to us. Why? Because if the little kids stop shouting, the rocks will cry out because something's going to cry out because God the maker is worthy of all, of all of our honor. But we're dead, and none of us will turn to the Lord. But God, the Holy Spirit, is working in this world. He's working in our families. He's working in this room. He's working in this town. And he can prepare someone to hear the gospel. And when they hear it, it will be a match to the gasoline. It doesn't have, nobody has to worry that it's going to work. It's, you don't dare go anywhere close because you know what's going to happen. You know what's going to happen to a life. It will change. And it will change unto their salvation and unto Jesus' high glory. And so, starting in Romans 9, there's nobody else to talk about. He talked about the barbarians. He talked about the Greeks. And he talked about the Hebrews. That's it. There's nobody else in the world. There's nobody, there's nobody else. All of us are condemned. This is what... Will you turn in your Bibles, please, to Romans nine, uh, 3. And we're going to start at 9. And we're going to run from where we... From there up to where we were. We've been heading about 26, 27. Romans 3, 9 says... What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved that both Jews and Gentiles, that they're all under sin. As it is written, there's none, none righteous. No, not one. There's none that seeketh, that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way. They're together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good. One. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they've used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatsoever thing the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may be become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall be no flesh justified in his sight, for by the law is knowledge of sin. That's the pre-gospel. There's not a person ever that will ever get saved that isn't here first. You must get to the point where you put your hand over your mouth and say, God is God, and I have offended him. There is no one in heaven and no one that will ever go there that doesn't reach this because it is only here that you have eyes to see. When you are here, when you have stopped, when you've been stopped and you know your guilt, when you know that you're undone, when you know that the only thing that hasn't happened is your, is your sentence carried out, but you've already been condemned, when there is no hope and there is no place to go, you will listen for the gospel. You will hear it with ears and with joy, and you will hear it and pant for it. You will crave it like food and pant for it like water. You will want it more than anything, and you would trade your entire life for it. A man found a treasure once in a field, and he went home, and he started collecting everything he could find. He 
collected it all. He looked at everything he owned and he said, what can I get for this? What can I get for this? What can I get for this? He liquidated his entire life and bought that field. If you want a field with a treasure that is inexpressible, where eye has not seen and ear has not heard and neither has it yet entered into the hearts of man, what God has prepared for those who love him, you must, must, must trade everything for it. You must trade everything. You must trade your ugliness, your sin, and your goodness. You must trade it all. You don't, God does not make up for what you don't have. It's not for the, peop, for the barbarians Jesus will have died. But for you Greeks, you only need a little way. And you Hebrews, you only need a tiny bit. Jesus is only three inches tall for you. No, no. The longer you know the Lord, the more infinitely high above you he is. And the more you realize how much of a Savior you have. We have no idea who our Savior is. We have no idea his value or his worth. But we are growing in that estimation. And that is God's grace in our heart. And it's our inheritance. That is what you get. Your prize is that you get God. You get him. He's yours. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. And I am his. And that is something that you would trade it all for. Take this whole world and give me Jesus. Take this whole world. Because you start recognizing what true means. Your eyes now are ready to see, and your ears are ready to hear. And when someone says, you may, there is a righteousness that comes from God, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, and it comes by faith in Jesus Christ. To be right with God, to be reconciled with God, have no offense that God is not angry with you, that nothing in any way is held against you, that he only has not under probation, He doesn't tolerate you. He loves you with an everlasting love. And he will give cities for you, it says. He will trade nations for you, that you are precious and dear. And when you go through the floods, it will not overwhelm you. And when you go through the fire, you will not be burned. Do you realize that there is no true rest until you realize that it's not you doing it? And when you truly realize of what you were saved from and what you are saved to, take whatever else is in my hand, whatever else idol that I'm still petting, and my pockets are full of idols and so are yours. Every time that you come to an idol, you're like, no, I'd rather have Jesus. That is growing in grace. That's what it is. And that's why we attend together. We attend together. We attend together to, to stir up love and good works among each other, to tell each other to the, to the gospel, to share each other that we are sinners and that God is kind to us and that that means he's kind to you. That's what we do. We love each other practically, and that's why that it's something that gets better and better and better and better. It never stops. It grows forever. So when we, when we see that, that it's all through faith in the blood of Christ, and we've talked about this at length, what does faith mean? What does the blood of Christ do? Who is the blood of Christ for? What benefit was there of the blood of Christ to me? And then we saw that way more than to me, the blood of Christ was much more of a benefit to God. 
that it was more important to God than it was ever important to me. The blood of Christ is my only hope. You prisoners of hope, there is no, there's nothing except the blood of Christ standing bef- between you and your doom. That mercy that, was expo- that, that, that Christ did for us is all for us. That's all. But it's way not everything that the death of Christ did. The death of Christ did way more than that. So this was where we were last week, to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. See, there was an extra phrase in that sentence. That sentence started, God set Jesus forth to be the propitiation through faith in his blood, that he would be the, the, the mercy seat, that he would be the atoning sacrifice so that God's wrath could be turned away from us and his heart of love and loving kindness could be turned towards us. And that's done through faith in Christ's blood. But this sentence, look at 325. Could you, or, sorry, Isaiah, could you put this 325 on the board, please? Romans 325. It says that, let me see, is it here? Whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness. Why did he put Jesus forth to be the propitiation through our faith in his blood? To save our souls? Because that's what we've talked about for six weeks. No. According to this sentence, the reason that God, the Father, put Jesus to be the propitiation so that God could turn his wrath away from us and turn his loving eyes towards us is so he could declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are past. Now, what in the world does that mean? It means that there were past sins that God forgave and Jesus had not yet died. For centuries, God saved sinners. He saved sinners and saved sinners and saved sinners. And apparently, to anybody that wanted to look, God was unfair and unjust. How can God save a sinner? What the Bible is as clear as a bell is, if God were fair and God were just, he can't save you. He can't. To save you means he's not just. But he has mercy. And so what we see is through the death of Christ, he is able to clear his name. That's what it says. To declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Why did God save sinners when no one had died for their sins? Do you think that Moses was in heaven? Do you think that the patriarchs are in heaven? You know they are because as Jesus was talking to the Pharisees, he said, and the Pharisees were trying to trap him about marriage or whatever, he said, have you not heard that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He's not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. What he was saying clear as a bell is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are right now in God's presence, saved and safe. But how in the world could he save Adam? How could he save Adam? Adam is the father of all sin. He is the one that death and destruction are ours because of him. They, Adam and Eve trusted Satan's word more than God's word. God told them one thing, Satan raised it into a question, and they were like, you're right. And put Satan's word above God's? Does that not earn them damnation of all people? 
to where every one of their descendants for all of, all of time is now bound to sin. He's God's son, it's it. How is Adam in heaven? Do you see Adam is in heaven because Jesus died on the cross? But how does that happen? Jesus didn't die on the cross when Adam was living, but Adam is in heaven. That meant God saved Adam. How did he save him when there was no He should have died for his own sins. Do you see? He is declaring his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. God was forbearant. God was merciful. God, sa- God covered, shielded people with his hand and allowed them to be forgiven because God knew that Jesus would die on the cross. When Jesus agreed to be the second person of the Trinity and our Savior, it was as good as done. It was the same as done. And God doesn't look through time. God is not in time. God looks at all times at the same moment. And Jesus dying on the cross was enough to save Adam. And then you're looking and go, whoa, there is a pattern here. Who else did he say was there? Abraham? Abraham, the God of Abraham? Abraham would rather have his wife take the fall and look like a fallen woman than to simply admit that he had married her. Why? Because he wanted to save his own neck. Do you not know? That, that There's no virtue there. Why would he be in heaven? He's in heaven because he believed God. And in God's mind, in God's estimation, that's the same as being righteous. To trust what God said is the same as being righteous before God. Through faith in his blood, to trust in Christ's blood is to be the same as if you've never offended God in your whole life, ever. You've only pleased him every moment of your life. You do not live as a cringing, cowering, uh, please God, don't destroy me. Because he destroyed Jesus. And there's no double indemnity. Jesus was punished, it's done. You're forgiven, and you're welcomed, and you're encouraged, and you're adopted as his children. So when Abraham entered the portals of glory, it was because Jesus, who had not yet become a man, died for him on the cross. Look at Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob was a cheater every day of his life. He wasn't a good son. He wasn't a good husband. He wasn't a good father. He wasn't a good brother. There's not ten words in the entire Bible that make you think he was good in any way. He, he was unfaithful to God every day of his life. And God put his love on him. Why? Because God put his love on him. And why is he in heaven? And why was he in heaven when the Lord Jesus was speaking? Because Jesus will die for him. Why? Because he has a savior. That's why. The Old Testament saints did not get into heaven by doing things. And neither do we. How about David? The man after God's own heart. How about Moses? Moses, who ran as a fugitive from justice, and the God of justice called him his friend. Are you serious? How in the world? David, who had a man killed and then took his wife. This is the man after God's own heart. Have you ever read the Bible and go, I don't get it at all? 
The only person that, that Melissa ever liked in the Bible was Joseph because she couldn't find anything wrong with him. It's because we are all fallen sinners, and as a Savior, you are as clean as God himself. And I am not blaspheming. I'm telling you the truth. In God's estimation, you are as clean as he is. And when you go to heaven, you will not dirty it. You will go to heaven, and you will be clean, and you'll be worthy to wear white. Are you serious? (laughs) The thought of me wearing white is the most ridiculous thing in the world, except that Jesus died for me. That is what we celebrate. That is what we are together for. That is what we are to shout in each other's ears until the tears come and then you weep in each other's ears and you tell each other that you have a Savior and that you can hold on. You can hold on through your last heartbeat. You can hold on through the funeral. You can hold on through the divorce. You can hold on through your bankruptcy. You can hold on. You can hold on because you've not offended God at all. He's your friend. Why? Because Jesus died for us. And this Jesus who you shout Hosanna to and then turn around and say crucify. Aren't you glad that it's not our record that God holds for us to be right with him? He holds Jesus' record for us to be right with him. And that is enough It's enough for him. So when Jesus was set forth to be the propitiation through faith in his blood, it was because God was clearing his name. And when he cleared his name that day, he cleared it forever. Anybody could have looked at God and said, he's not fair at all. How in the world can he save this person? If he is just, he can't save him. And they would be speaking the truth. When Satan whispers that to your ear, believe it or not, he's not actually lying. He's telling you the truth. There is no reason whatsoever that you should come into into heaven. None. There is nothing you've ever done that's worthy of anything but destruction. And you have a Savior, and that's enough. That is enough. That is enough for God the fair, God the just, God the righteous, God the righteous who proclaims his own righteousness. So when God proclaims his own righteousness and acquits you, he is not being unrighteous. He is calling you justified. He is saying righteous. It is a, it's an edict. It's a, it's a fiat. He's declaring it to be true, and it's true. You are righteous because you have a Savior. And that Savior, when he died, cleared God's name. There was a stain on his name from the beginning of time till that moment. And it says here in 26, if you'll go to 26, okay, so 25 says at the end to declare his righteousness for the remissions of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God, okay? But 26 then says, somewhere written on this paper. Can you put up 26? I'm read it. To declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness. What time? The last breath of Jesus was this time. He declared, I say, at this time, his righteousness. That he might be just and the justifier. He's perfectly fair. He's perfectly righteous. And he justifies sinners righteously because Jesus died. And when that happened, the stain that was on God's name was forever removed. There is no one 
ever, they will see your judgment before their doom. They will see it. The world will know it all. And there's not a single soul, living or dead, in all of human history or future history that will look at me and say, what a guy, he should go to heaven. Not one. They will all know my desert. They will know. And there will be people yammed into the furnace way better than me who will forever know the inside of a prison door, never to be opened, who did better things than I ever did, were nicer than I ever was, and more consistently good than I've ever been, who never looked with faith to the Savior on the cross, who never ever glorified God through his Son. That is what God demands of us. He demands us to look at his Son. That's what he demands. And as we look at his Son, faith is simply the sight that he gives us. And when that faith is rewarded, it's rewarded with life eternal. And his name will be forever ever praised because when those people see me go to heaven and they go to hell, they'll call God righteous because Jesus was fully punished in my place. And because of that, God is not unfair. He's perfectly righteous, and the stain is forever removed. So I just want you to see that the Bible is not about us. The Bible is about God. God is the maker. God is the sustainer. He's the just and the justifier. And Christ Jesus is the exalted one in this planet and throughout the entire cosmos. Why? Because God wants it that way. There is a banquet prepared for his son, the king said, and I want you all, compel them to come in. Fill my house, is what he says. So we work today, and we work tomorrow, and we work for as long as there's light. Friday's coming when we'll be reminded of our sin against our God, and Sunday will be next week when we remember that he came out of the ground. And when he came out of the ground, so did we. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Thank you, Almighty God, for your kindness to us. We ask that you would give us um, a, a sweet sense of rest as we think of the wonderful work that our Savior has done for us and that he has reconciled us perfectly to you and that we are at peace. Thank you, God, that you've made yourself at peace with us through such a horrible act as destroying your son for us. We want him to be highest in our minds and our hearts and our affections. And only you can do that in our lives, Holy Spirit. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.